following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this is quite a familiar part of the Bible for Christians. Uh, and most people, even if they don't know specific commandments, have probably heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, let's read this passage in Exodus 20. It goes from verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 21. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth below, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live a long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet, covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So we know these laws as the Ten Commandments. That's the name everyone gives to them. That's what everybody calls them. But interestingly, that name is not in the Bible. That's not there. If you look at the beginning of Exodus 20, if you've got a heading in your Bible that says the Ten Commandments, that's been put there by translators. That's not part of the original text. Uh, the chapter just simply starts by saying, and the Lord said to Moses, and then goes into these laws. Uh, when the Bible refers back to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy and other places, it simply calls them the Ten Words. That's how the Hebrew reads, the ten words. Uh, not that there's literally ten of them, but that these were words from the mouth of God himself. Words that God gave to Moses, laws that he gave to Moses to pass on to the people of Israel. In fact, God spoke these laws in the hearing of the whole nation of Israel. This is the only part of the law that God spoke to the whole community. Uh, the rest of it he gave to Moses to pass on. So these laws are incredibly significant. In the context of the whole Jewish law, they are the first 10 in a list of about 613 commandments. Uh, and, and together, they form what we call the law of Moses or the Torah. It's the Hebrew word meaning law. 
to the law stretches from this point all the way through the rest of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, that's all the law, uh, some of Numbers, and then all of Deuteronomy. So it's a huge chunk of the Bible. And these Ten Commandments are the beginning and they are the foundation of the whole of the law of Moses. These are really the foundational principles of the rest of the law. All the other little laws, the, the Sabbath and the festival laws and the dietary laws and the cleanliness laws and the sacrificial laws, they are all an extrapolation and an application of these founding principles. Uh, these Ten Commandments are taken and applied to all sorts of situations of case law, but these are the guiding ethics, the bedrock of Judaism, the bedrock of the values and morals by which God wanted Israel to live. Now, we tend to take the Ten Commandments today and apply them to our lives in a very individual kind of way. We kind of assume that these are the laws, these are the rules that I should keep to be a good Christian as an individual. But Israel didn't really think about them that way. That's not really how they were given. These are very much community laws. These are very much for, the, for the, the whole body of Israel as a nation. This is the point in the, in the Exodus story where Israel has shifted from being a family to being a nation. They've come to Mount Sinai. They are now constituted as a nation by God. God enters into this covenant with them. And this is part of Israel's expectation as a covenant people of what's expected of them. They have this unique relationship with God. And the Ten Commandments are given in that context. A nation is going to need laws, right? A nation is going to need some sort of civil governance for its life. And that's what the law is. Not just religious commandments to be good people or good citizens. These are the national laws of Israel. And so the Ten Commandments kind of function like a bill of rights within Israel's life. Kind of, in, in a sense, you could almost say like a treaty of Waitangi. Except they're not between two people groups. They're between a people and God. But they are nonetheless a founding document, a founding principle upon which this nation is built. And then those laws are applied and extrapolated in all kinds of ways through the rest of the Torah. So this is for Israel as a nation in a community sense. What I want to do today is not to work through them one by one. We could do that. We'd be here a long time. But it's valuable to do that, to look at the individual commandments. But what I want to do is the same thing that we did with the plagues of Egypt. Look at them together. Because I think when you look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, as a whole group, you start to get a sense of what their purpose is and how they functioned together in the life of Israel and how they function for us today. So what I would like to do is to, is to pose a question and then spend the rest of the message answering it. Pretty simple. That's, that's my goal today. So the question is this. Should Christians today keep the Ten Commandments verbatim? In other words, as written. Should we take the Ten Commandments, read them off the page, and apply them straight to our lives today? And the answer that I want to give to that question is no. That might sound like heresy. You might want to take me outside and stone me as a false prophet. But before you do that, let me try and explain why I'd answer no to that question. And it really comes down to something that Jesus said. It really comes down to a comment that Jesus made in Matthew 5 about the law and about the Ten Commandments. So we are going to go back and forth today a little bit between the Old Testament and the New Testament and look at the Ten Commandments in the context of the whole biblical story. So I want to jump straight to Matthew 5 and look at what Jesus said specifically about the law. And then I promise we will come back and look in more detail at the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 5, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them. So Jesus has come now as the fulfillment of the entire law, and by law he's referring to these 613 commandments that we call the Torah, including the Ten Commandments. Jesus has fulfilled the Ten Commandments. In what sense? How has Jesus fulfilled the Ten Commandments? Well, he certainly kept them all. He kept the Ten Commandments, although, interestingly, there was one occasion when he let his disciples break one of them. Anyone know what that was? The Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah. His disciples broke the Sabbath. We're going to look at this in a little bit more detail in a couple of weeks. We'll talk specifically about the Sabbath. But Jesus' disciples broke that one, and he was fine with it. He didn't say anything to suggest that they hadn't broken the commandment. He explained their actions, but they broke that commandment, and Jesus condoned it. So what that suggests is that Jesus was not as concerned about the specific letter of the law as he was about fulfilling the heart of the law. What Jesus did is to fulfill the heart of the Ten Commandments, the heart of the law, and he told us explicitly what that is because he was asked what the greatest command is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus fulfilled those deeper commandments and in doing so, he fulfilled the entire law. He got to the heart of the law and fulfilled what it was always all about. But there's another sense in which Jesus fulfilled the law. Fulfillment is more than just keeping the rules. Jesus fulfilled the law in that the law, the Ten Commandments, always pointed towards him. This is so vital in understanding the Ten Commandments. The whole of the law always pointed towards Jesus as the climax and the culmination and the fulfillment of the law. When God gave these laws to Moses, he knew that Jesus one day would come And he gave these laws so that they would function as a huge signpost pointing towards Christ. Paul says this in Galatians 3. He says, the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. Just like a teacher equips and educates and trains and mentors a child till they reach adulthood, the law was there to train, to equip Israel, to mentor Israel, to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. It always prepared them and pointed them towards Christ. Jesus, ultimately, even though they didn't see it at the time. Hebrews says that the law was a shadow of the good things that were to come. So when you think of the Ten Commandments, think of them like looking at a shadow. Looking at a person's shadow. The point of a shadow is not to stare at the shadow. It's to turn around and look at the person. To look at the reality. That's what should happen when we read the Ten Commandments. You don't keep looking at the shadow. You use the shadow to see where the person is. And you look into the face of the person. That's the function of the Ten Commandments. You can maybe start to see why I answered no to that question. Because the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to point us to Jesus. They are just a shadow of the reality that is Christ. So every one of those commandments, every one of the Ten Commandments, in some way, sheds some light on Jesus. If you look at them. Every one of them will tell you something about the person of Jesus, tell you something about the work of Jesus, tell you something about his life, his death, his resurrection. They are defined ultimately in and through Christ. So, for example, the the commandment, the second commandment, that we are not to make any images, not to make graven images, is the old language. Why shouldn't we make images of God? Because Christ is the one true image of the Father. Colossians 1. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We're not to make other images to bow down and worship because our worship is to be directed towards Jesus, the one true image. Why are we to keep the Sabbath? Because Christ is our Sabbath. And we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks' time, talking about the Sabbath. Why are we not to murder? Because Christ came to represent life and embody eternal life within himself. Why are we not to lie? Because Christ came to, as the greatest revelation of the truth of God, the embodiment of grace and truth. That's why we don't lie. All of these commandments are defined in Jesus. He gives them real substance. They, were, they had a vital role in Israel's life and formation, but in the biblical story, they are given substance by Jesus. And we need to read them, not in the context of Judaism, as if Jesus had never come, but in the context of the revealed Christian faith of the crucified and risen Messiah. We've got to read the Ten Commandments as Christians who stand on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. And we look back at them now, and we see them in new light in view of Jesus. So when you read the Ten Commandments, let them be a shadow that points you to Christ. Now, Jesus did not just fulfill the commandments. He did something really interesting with them. Look at the next passage in the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus talks about fulfilling the law uh, himself. Then he says in verse 21, You have heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. Where does he get that from? Exodus 20. That's straight out of the Ten Commandments, right? One of the commandments. You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then look at this, verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Those four words, but I tell you, are incredibly profound. Because what Jesus is saying is that he now has authority over the law. He's saying, I know that you've heard this. I know this is enshrined in sacred scripture for you, speaking to a Jewish community. But I tell you, in other words, Jesus is assuming the authority to reinterpret the law. Who can do this? Only God. God is the only one who has authority over the law. So Jesus is saying, placing himself on an equal status with God and assuming the authority to redefine and reinterpret the law. And that's what he proceeds to do through the rest of Matthew chapter 5. Take law after law after law after law and reinterpret it. And he does this with two of the Ten Commandments. Firstly, the one not to murder. He says, I know you've heard it said don't murder, but now here's what I tell you. Don't even get angry with someone. Because what Jesus sees is that the act of murder originates in the human heart. It often arises out of hatred, anger, jealousy, bitterness, resentment. So Jesus goes to the heart and he deals with it there. He doesn't just deal with the fruit of the tree. He goes to the root of the tree and he cuts it off because he sees, it, he sees the whole tree, not just the fruit, which is expressed in the commandment. He does the same with adultery. In the next paragraph, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, same words again, assuming authority over the law, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully will be guilty of adultery. He's doing the same thing, not just dealing with the evil fruit of adultery, the action itself. He's going to the root of the tree and cutting it off and saying, now that commandment encapsulates all sexual impurity. It's the whole deal. Now, those are the only two of the Ten Commandments that Jesus deals with, but then he proceeds to just take others from the Torah, others from the law, and redefine them. And in some cases, his reinterpretation is even more radical 
than the murder and adultery commands. In some cases, he completely sets aside some of the laws in the Old Testament and replaces them with something categorically different. So he says, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for truth, tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This would be like someone today saying to you, I know the Bible says this, but I say to you the opposite. You'd think they're a heretic. Who has the authority to do that? Only God. That's what Jesus is saying. Only one who, who has fulfilled the law can do this. This authority is not open to anyone. Christ is unique, uniquely God, and uniquely able to take authority over the law and reinterpret it for us. And he does this. And what he is doing in the Sermon on the Mount consistently is raising the bar. He doesn't lower the bar of these commands to make it a bit easier for us to get into the kingdom of heaven. He raises the bar infinitely to make it absolutely impossible for anyone to get into the kingdom of heaven. When he's gone through all of these laws in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew 6, he just sums up this little section with this, this verse in uh, verse 48. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I'd, I'd like to imagine Jesus saying that with a smile on his face. You know, just, just be perfect. You know, too much to ask, really? Just be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, he has raised the bar infinitely. You, you think about the commandment not to murder. If we just go by that commandment, probably most of us in this room could clear that bar, right? If we behave ourselves, most of our life, I'm guessing, it's only a guess, but probably most of us in this room have kept that commandment, not to murder, to this point in our lives. Let's hope we can keep it for the remainder of our lives. But as soon as that commandment is extended out to include anger, what happens? The pass rate goes from 100% to 0% instantly. Jesus doesn't just soften it a little bit. He doesn't say, well, don't murder much. He, he, doesn't say, he doesn't say, don't murder on Sundays. He says, don't even get angry. Don't even get angry at someone, and suddenly we're all, we're all sunk. Suddenly we've got nothing. And we realize what absolute failures we are. Jesus raises the bar to the level of perfection, and then he just states that that's exactly what the bar is. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Philip Yancey says this about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount forces us to recognize the great distance between God and us. And any attempt to reduce that distance by somehow moderating its demands misses the point altogether. We're not to try and soften what Jesus is saying. These are absolutely impossible ethics that he's putting in front of us. And that's the point. Our first response to the Ten Commandments should not be to say, oh, well, here's a, here's a list of rules that I can keep. As a Christian, our first response should not be to say, yep, I, I reckon I can do that. Our first response should be to say, my goodness, there is absolutely no way I can ever keep those commandments. Not the way Jesus reinterprets them. Not the way Jesus defines them. That bar is incredibly high. There is no possible way. Because as long as you look at the Ten Commandments and you think you can possibly clear that bar, then the Ten Commandments just become another form of self-righteousness. They just become another attempt to moralize our way to God, which completely misses the point of the gospel. Only when we stand before the Ten Commandments and we realize we are utterly unable to keep these laws will we recognize our need for a Savior. And that's the point of the Ten Commandments. They are a tutor to lead us to Christ. And ultimately, they are a tutor to lead us to the cross 
where we see that Jesus has paid for all of our failure to keep these commandments. That's what happened in the death of Jesus. That's what happened on the cross. This is the incredible blessing of Jesus. It's this double blessing. He's fulfilled the law, kept it perfectly, and then he proceeds to die in our place for breaking it. He takes all of our failure upon himself, all the ways in which we've fallen short of these commands, all the ways in which we have had other gods before the one true God, all the ways in which we have worshipped other things and had idols in our lives. Jesus took that upon himself. He died for us as lawbreakers, all of our failure to observe Sabbath, all the ways in which we've dishonored our fathers and mothers, all the ways in which we've lied, all the ways in which we've taken from others in selfish and greedy ways, all the ways in which we've hated and been angry with others, all the ways in which we've been jealous of other people. Christ took it on himself. Jesus took it into his own body. He bore it. He carried it. He took it to the grave to pay the price we should have paid to die the death we should have died, to free us and acquit us. So even though our failure to keep those commandments meant that we racked up a whole lot of debt before God, Jesus has cancelled the charges, paid the debt so that we can stand approved before the Father. That means our first response to the Ten Commandments should be to say, my goodness, there's no way I can ever keep those commandments. And our second response should be to say, thank God for Jesus, that he has done what I could never do, that he has lived a life I could never live, And then he's died a death I could never die. He's carried my sin upon himself. If you listen hard enough, the Ten Commandments will preach the gospel to you. They'll speak to you of the love of Jesus. And you will realize as you look at them in the context of the biblical story that your sin is far worse than you ever thought it was. But the love of God is greater than you ever imagined. And it frees you so that we are released from the burden of of the law through Jesus. Really, the Ten Commandments are about grace. If you just leave them in Exodus 20, you'll miss that. But if you see them as a shadow that points you to the person of Jesus, you'll bask in the grace of God on your behalf. So, we come back then to this question of how the Ten Commandments apply to our lives today. And to the original question that I started with, should Christians today keep the Ten Commandments verbatim? Because one response to this is then to say, well, they don't matter then, do they? Because if Jesus has died for my breaking them, we can set them aside. But Jesus never acted that way. Jesus never said you can disregard these commands. That's not the point of the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say, here's the way to live, but don't worry because I'm just going to die so it doesn't matter. Jesus gave us these commands and the Ten Commandments were given so that they would be an expression of God's grace in our lives, so that they would be an outworking of God's grace. Not something we do to try and achieve grace or achieve or merit salvation, but something we do because we are saved as Christians by the grace of God. See, in the Bible, the law always comes after grace. Grace always comes first. This was true for Israel. God didn't give Israel the Ten Commandments to make them good people. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments to say, now this is what you need to do in order to be right with me. God had already chosen Israel. He had already saved Israel, hadn't he? He'd liberated them. 
The word salvation is used in the Bible long before the Ten Commandments came along. God had elected this people, he'd saved them and liberated them, and now he's entering into covenant with them. And then, out of that, he gives them the Ten Commandments as a way of living in view of his grace that had already carried them to freedom on eagles' wings, as God describes. And it's just the same with us. Those who belong to Jesus, we're already saved. Christ has already paid for our sin. He's already given us freedom before God. And now these Ten Commandments are an outworking of grace in our lives. Not that they don't matter, but they are an expression of growing in the grace of God. And the way that we interpret them should be in view of Jesus. That's really why I answered no to that question. Because we're not to interpret and apply the Ten Commandments just verbatim into our lives. We are to apply them in view of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's Jesus that gives them relevance and substance and definition to our lives today. So as you approach the Ten Commandments today, as a Christian, on the basis of God's grace in your life, the question you should be asking is, well, what does this command now look like in view of Jesus? And taking these biblical commands and running them through the biblical story and saying, well, how does this how does this change or not change in view of who Jesus is? And what you'll find, this is a really good exercise to do in your life groups or in your own Bible study. Take one of the Ten Commandments and look at how that commandment unfolds through the rest of the biblical story, especially in view of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the witness to him in the New Testament. So you'll find one of two things will happen. Either that commandment will basically remain as it is. So an example of that is the command to honor our father and mother. You get all the way through Scripture, right through to 1 Peter, and that command is restated, exactly as it is. In fact, even the promise of living a long life is still there. It hasn't changed. It takes on new significance in view of Christ, but it's right there. It hasn't changed. In other cases, the command will be extended or it'll be expounded in view of Jesus, like the murder command, like the adultery command. In every case, these commands take on new shape and new definition and new meaning in view of Jesus. So we need to apply them in view of the cross and in view of the resurrection of Jesus. Now let me just for a couple of minutes do this with one of the commands. We don't have time to do it with all the commands. You can do this in your own time. But let me give you one example of this from one of the Ten Commandments. We take the command, the third command, not to misuse the name of the Lord. Or, you know, the older wording, do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? And what do we all assume that means? Swearing. Right? This is the command that parents love to teach their kids. Do not swear. And we assume that what that command meant is don't use the name God as a swear word. That's obviously a good lesson to teach, by the way. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not really what that command means. Uh, not even in its original context. Uh, the key in this command is the, is the name of God. Misusing the name of the Lord. What, what, what does God's name represent? His entire character. Everything that God is. When, when you see the name Yahweh, or just reference to the name of the Lord, it's shorthand for all of God's attributes. All of His character, His reputation, His whole being, the totality of who He is, is all wrapped up in His name. And one of the commands Israel had in the Old Testament is to make known the name of the Lord. In other words, reflect His character, represent His nature to the nations around them. Now you get to the New Testament, and that commandment takes on new meaning because God's name takes on new meaning. In Philippians 2, you read that Jesus was exalted to the highest place and given the name 
that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus gets this name, Lord, which in the Old Testament was a name for God, a name for Yahweh. It's right there in Isaiah. And Jesus in the New Testament gets that name, which means he is God, which means he shares in the name of God. He shares in the character of God, the nature of God, the very being of God. Jesus shares in that name. So now as Christians, our calling in the world is to reflect the name of Jesus, is to embody Christ and be ambassadors of his name to represent his name well. And so, when you read that third command in view of Jesus, what it now means, what it commands us, is not to act or speak in any way that would misrepresent the character of Jesus. It prohibits not just swearing, because if it was just swearing, we could try really hard and get a swear jar and we might just make it. But it prohibits any way in which we would misrepresent the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus in our lives. And so straight away, that throws you back upon the grace of God, doesn't it? Because you realize, my goodness, there is no, suddenly the bar went through the roof. And that's, exact, that's the effect. These command, if that doesn't happen in your thinking and in your heart, you've, you've missed the significance of these commands. There should be a point when you look at any one of them, when you suddenly realize, my goodness, there is no possible way I can do this. And you've fallen back on the mercy of God and said, thank God for Jesus that he has kept this command and he's died for all of the ways I've completely failed to reflect the character of Jesus in my life. And yet Jesus has done this. He's perfectly reflected the character and nature of God. He's perfectly born the image of God because he is one with the Father. And now I come back to my life and I say, Jesus, I want to look at this command now as a way of growing in your grace. I'm not going to try and keep this just to be a good Christian, to be a moral person, certainly not to try and gain any kind of footing with you, but simply as an outworking and an overflow of your goodness and your grace in my life, I want to grow in this area. I want to ask you by the power of your spirit to help me in my workplace, wherever, to be a greater living representation of the name of Jesus. I want to be a more accurate reflection of your character. This is what it means for you to say this in your workplaces. It's to say, Jesus, I want you to help me to reflect your name Help me to be a person who acts with integrity in my workplace, who follows through on commitments I make to colleagues, employees, contractors, consultants, because that's a reflection of the name of Christ. I want to be a person who's not heavy-handed with employees because that would be a misrepresentation of the name of Christ. I want to be a person who is kind, who isn't manipulative, who isn't duplicitous, who isn't deceitful in the workplace because I'm bearing the name of Christ. And we want to be living ambassadors of the name of Christ. It's not just about swearing or not swearing. It's about you as an image of God, reflecting the one true image who is Christ. And despite your best efforts to go out and do this tomorrow, you will fail. And again, you're thrown back on the mercy of God time after time not to take a big guilt trip not to be laden with shame and guilt again but to say thank god for jesus i need god's grace refreshed in my life and then he stands us on our feet again and says now i want you to grow in this area it's not insignificant you don't set the command aside this is important i want you to grow in this area but only on the basis of my grace that's how we apply these to our lives as an outworking of god's grace they're important for us. They're an important part of our Christian lives, but they must come after the grace of God has done its work and be soaked in God's grace, even as we're applying them into our lives. So, I don't know whether I've convinced you or not. 
of my, of, of my original answer to the question, should Christians today keep the Ten Commandments verbatim? I said no. Uh, you, you might agree, you might disagree, but I hope, if nothing else, that I've at least convinced you that we must, must, must see the Ten Commandments as a shadow that points us to Jesus. We must look at them in view of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to recognize ourselves as broken sinners before the law of God that demands from us what we can never achieve. And yet to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, because he has rescued me through Jesus Christ. And now as an expression of the working of God's grace in my life, I want to come back to these commands and in view of Jesus, seek to live them out faithfully by his strength, in his power, through his spirit, totally dependent on the grace of God. That's the Ten Commandments in view of Jesus. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for your law that you revealed in the Old Testament. Its, its demands are extreme. And some of the law, God, we just find hard to understand. But we thank you, Lord, that that part of Scripture is there to point us to Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, that you stand as the final destination that the law always pointed towards. You've wrapped it up, you've summed it up, you've fulfilled it, and you've died for us for breaking it. Lord, we just thank you, Jesus. We just thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your death on our behalf. Thank you for the beautiful gospel that you've done what we could never do for ourselves. Father, some of us have, have heard this kind of message before, but it's just never really set in. And we've just become callous and blasé. And we just want to come back and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. And now, God, we, we come to these commandments and we ask that you'd prompt us in ways that you want us to be more faithful in living these out, but only in view of Jesus. Examine our lives, Lord. Make us your people in the world. Lord, help our lives to be more of an expression of these commandments. But Lord, we want to do this only in and through Jesus, only on the basis of your grace and by the power of your spirit in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us. Thank you that you've died for us, even while we were sinners, to bring us to the Father. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.